Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, June 14th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. In these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And if you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time. And I'll try to keep an eye on it and answer questions as they come up. Here's what I plan to cover today. First, uh, new opinions. The court issued a number of new opinions this week. On Monday this week, that's June 11th, the court issued three opinions in argued cases. And this included one of the uh, more anticipated cases of the term, Husted v. A. Philip Randolph Institute. And that's a case about the legality of Ohio's system for removing names from the voting rolls. Uh, so we'll be talking about those three opinions. Uh, after issuing those three opinions, it was kind of a, a, a meager um, three opinions. Uh, court watchers were hoping for a, uh, a, a bigger number of opinions than that. Uh, but after issuing those three opinions, the court announced that it would have an additional opinion day on Thursday. This was not unexpected. It's pretty common at this time of year, especially with so many outstanding opinions left for the court to add additional opinion days. So today, that's Thursday, June 14th, the uh, court returned and issued two more opinions in argued cases, bringing us up to five for the week. Now, on Monday, in addition to those three opinions in argued cases, the court also disposed of one of its argued cases without an opinion. Um, so let's let's begin just by talking briefly about that. Now, the case was Washington v. United States. And this is a long-running dispute between the state of Washington and various Pacific Northwest Indian tribes, uh, along with the federal government, who was, uh, which was siding uh, with the Indian tribes in this case. Now, when I say this is a long-running case, I mean it's been litigated in the court for decades, and that's important for a reason I'll come back to in a moment. Now, the basic issue in this case is it... it, uh, it deals with a, a series of treaties from 1854 and 1855. And under, the, under these treaties, various Pacific Northwest tribes were guaranteed access to fishing grounds and specifically to salmon runs. And the tribes argued that uh, Washington was in violation of this treaty by reducing the salmon population. Now, uh, numerous state highways cross these salmon streams and the, the, uh, the culverts underneath these uh, these highways are not designed to allow salmon to pass through. Uh, so this had the result of cutting off salmon from traditional fishing grounds used by the tribes. Now, the lower courts in this case sided with the Indian tribes. The district court issued an injunction ordering Washington to replace the culverts within the treaty territory. Uh, and this uh, apparently would have amounted to uh, more than 800 culverts in the treaty territory. Uh, replace them with a modern design that allows the salmon to freely pass through. Now, Washington challenged this order on a number of grounds, including the interpretation of the treaty itself and the appropriateness of the the remedy, this particular injunction. And that was kind of the the uh, the bulk of the uh, the argument in the, the Supreme Court was about whether this injunction was appropriate. Um, but they also alleged that replacing all of these culverts would have an enormous cost. They, 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 uh, estimated at more than two billion, two billion dollars. And they claimed that it would have minimal effect on the salmon population because allegedly most of these streams have other obstructions, either upstream or downstream of these culverts, which, which also prevent this, the salmon migration. Now the tribes, uh, disputed both the cost estimate, which they, uh, uh, 
said was uh, overinflated, and also the the impact on the salmon. Now, here's where the case kind of fell apart. Justice Kennedy was recused from this case. Why? Over 30 years ago, um, when he was a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Justice Kennedy was involved in an earlier stage of this case. I mentioned this case has been going on for decades. Now, this conflict uh, was discovered late in the process. The case had already been granted by the Supreme Court and scheduled for argument. um, But before oral argument occurred, the conflict was discovered and Justice Kennedy recused himself. Now, it's not that surprising that that this got missed. Justice Kennedy has uh, heard between his time on the Supreme Court and his uh, decade plus on the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, he's heard thousands of cases. Uh, and it's uh, easy to uh, imagine that a case, a single uh, case from more than 30 years ago uh, would have uh, slipped his mind and, and not been easily spotted. Um, but the result was this left the court with only eight justices to hear the case. Now, this wasn't a case that had really obvious ideological divides. It wasn't necessarily clear how the justices would vote or what the final breakdown would look like. But on Monday this week, the court issued a simple one-line order that just said, the judgment is affirmed by an equally divided court. Now, what this means is the justices were evenly split four to four on the outcome in this court. And under the court's practices, when this happens, the lower court opinion stands. It's affirmed and and remains in place. But um, there's no... Supreme Court precedential value to this affirmance. So the fact that this is affirmed by this uh, evenly split 4-4 court, it means for the particular litigants in this particular case, whoever won below uh, retains their victory, but it isn't something you, you, it can't be relied on as a, as a Supreme Court precedent going forward. Um, now, as is uh, the court's normal practice, there are no opinions explaining why any of the, the justices voted uh, in a particular way in this case. And there isn't even any indication of which justices voted which way. So it's just a matter of speculation who are the four on one side and the four on the other side. Um, the ultimate result in this case, the tribes win. Um, so Washington will have to go ahead with uh, uh, the uh, starting to replace these uh, highway uh, culverts. Um, so before we get on to the cases, just one more quick piece of news from the week. The justices' 2017 financial disclosures were uh, were just released. Uh, among other things, these show the justices' uh, stock holdings. Now, there are only three justices on the court, and that's Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Breyer, and Justice Alito, three justices who own individual stocks as opposed to um, uh, mutual funds or, or, or other types of uh, uh, retirement accounts. Now, this holding of individual stocks is somewhat controversial because it occasionally uh, causes one of those judges, justices, to have to recuse themselves from a case that involves a company that they own stock in. Uh, and it has, in recent years, involved uh, some missed recusals, cases where a justice uh, did not immediately recuse, uh, for example, because the party in the case was a subsidiary of uh, company that they own stock in and they didn't immediately um, catch the conflict. Um, Now, as we just saw in that Washington v. United States case, the Salmon case, recusals at the Supreme Court can be a big deal. Now, at the lower courts, uh, recusal is not such a such a, a big issue because in most cases, another judge can just be substitute, substituted in for a judge that has a conflict of this type. Um, so it's not such a big deal. But the Supreme Court, where there's no justices that can step in in the case of a conflict, um, it's it's uh, it's a much bigger impact when a justice has to sit out a case. And so these individual stockholdings have been criticized uh, as 
just uh, causing unnecessary recusals because uh, justice could easily move their money into either a blind trust or a mutual fund or some other um, vehicle that doesn't uh, doesn't cause these kind of conflicts with individual companies. Um, now, from 2016 to 2017, uh, the total number of individual stocks held by these three justices went down from 49 different stocks to 44. Um, each of the three justices sold off at least some of their stocks this year, and that's been part of a gradual year-by-year decline as the justices have slowly divested themselves of these of these stocks, but, uh, you know, 44 is still a significant number. And, uh, of the three, Justice Alito holds the, the most, um, different stocks, uh, in his portfolio. Um, these financial disclosures also show that, um, that, uh, all of the justices earned at least some extra income from things outside of the Supreme Court. Many of them, this was from teaching. Uh, many of the justices teach over the summer, often in, in foreign countries. Um, it's kind of part of uh, some international travel combined with uh, teaching duties. Um, but with that out of the way, let's move on to some additional uh, business. So cert grants, new cases. There were no new grants this week, and this is the second week in a row. That's uh, somewhat unusual this time of the year for, for the court to go two weeks in a row without granting any new cases for next year. That leaves the total for next term at 18 cases so far. Now, we're keeping tr- an eye on this because uh, we want to see – how full the court's fall calendar will be. Just due to the timing, the the, the schedule of briefing a case, um, basically the fall calendar, that's the October, November, and December oral argument sessions, uh, there's, the cases for those months basically have to be granted before the court leaves for its summer recess. Now, based on recent year's grants, it looks like the court is unlikely to hit that number that have a full fall term, um, which, which again, would be typical for the last few years. Um, but you never know because typically the final grant list in June, the last, the, the cases that get granted in the last week of June, it's one of the largest um, single grants of cases of the entire term, typically second only to the first set of grants uh, after the summer when the court returns in the last week of September. So, so we'll likely get uh, a decent number of cases granted in the court's final week. And between the next two weeks, the, the court, it's conceivable that the court could add enough cases to fill up that fall calendar, but you know, we won't really know until, uh, until, uh, until it happens and we see what cases actually come down. So with that out of the way, let's move on to the new opinions for the week. Uh, I mentioned there were five. Now before this week, the court had 25 outstanding cases, uh, 25 uh, argued cases that we're still waiting on opinions in, with only three weeks left of the term. But between Monday and Thursday this week, the court issued opinions in five cases. It also got rid of the uh, evenly divided Washington case that we already discussed. So that leaves 19 cases to go, but only two more weeks left. So this is a, this is a very um, heavily backloaded term, and there's still quite a few high-profile cases uh, pending among those 19 that are, that are left to go. There's maybe six or seven, depending on how you count, um, uh, maybe more actually, uh, depending on what you count as significant. Um, so, so uh, this is still a lot left to come and it's going to be a, a crazy, uh, a couple of weeks coming up after, after this week for the court to uh, get rid of the rest of its cases. Now th- it's not a, um, there's no, there's no, uh, rule or legal requirement that uh, the court has to issue all of its opinions from this term by the end of June. It's a self-imposed deadline by, from the, uh, the court, um, and, and the, the justices uh, plan their, uh, their summer plans accordingly, expecting to have all these opinions out before the end of June. Um, and it's been a long time since the justices have uh, 
have missed that deadline more than 20 years. So it's, so it's, uh, the, the general consensus is that it would be very unlikely for the courts, for the court to, to, um, to miss that deadline and, and slip into July. But, uh, again, uh, there's, you know, uh, things can happen and, and, uh, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but I, I think the, the safer bet is that the court will, uh, will, will manage to get all these opinions out in the next two weeks. But again, we never know. Now, in terms of the total number of opinions for the, the term, the court heard oral argument in a total of 63 cases. And this is low by historical terms. It's part of a, uh, down, uh, decades long downward trend on the court of hearing fewer and fewer cases. But also um, among those 63 cases, so far three of those cases have been disposed uh, of without a uh, real opinion on the merits. Now one was United States v. Microsoft, which was, uh, which was dismissed as moot due to a new statute passed by Congress. That was a, um, a case about, uh, the Stored Communications Act. It was, uh, the, whether, um, the government could, um, seize, uh, emails stored overseas in a criminal investigation. The uh, one case was called City of Hayes, Kansas v. Vote. Um, that was a strange, uh, little, um, uh, case about the Fifth Amendment right to, uh, against uh, self-incrimination, and the court dismissed that as improvidently granted, meaning basically the, they learned that the case had complications that the court just didn't want to deal with, so they just uh, got rid of it. And then the third was the Washington v. United States, uh, the Salmon case that we already talked about. So that leaves them with only 60 real opinions in argue cases at most. Uh, that's assuming all of the rest of the cases get decided with a full opinion. And that is basically, that's an unprecedented load that has not happened uh, any time in modern, you know, history. Um, I've seen uh, at least going back to the 1940s, it hasn't happened. And, and I, I don't believe, I, I think you can go back much further than that. Um, and there hasn't been a, uh, a term with this few argued cases Um now, it's not impossible also that one or more of those remaining 19 cases could also be disposed of without an opinion for, for some reason. Um, so, again, we'll wait and see, but this is a very, very uh, low year in terms of the total number of um, uh, opinions. Uh, so um, let's move on and talk about those new opinions for the week. So uh, there were, again, five, three of them came on Monday. So let's just talk about the first of them. It's a case called China Agritech v. Resch. Now, this was a unanimous decision. Uh, it had a majority opinion by Justice Ginsburg for eight of the justices, and Justice Sotomayor wrote a separate concurrence um, disagreeing with the scope of the court's rules. So she she decided the same way in this particular case, but uh, but disagreed with some of the majority opinion. Now, this is a case about something known as equitable tolling. So just for some brief background to understand what this is case is about. You know, statutes of limitations are are um, time limits that are imposed on, on bringing a particular legal action. And there are different time limits for different types of actions. In this case, there was a, uh, a two-year um, statute of limitations. This was for a um, securities fraud uh, claim. and But there's there's a concept known as tolling, and that's when the statute of limitations is basically paused. It's it's uh, it's it's uh, suspended for a period of time, um, and then and then once the tolling ends, that it continues to run. That like that that this two year time period could continue to run once the tolling lifted. Now sometimes there's specific rules or statutes that require a statute of limitation to be tolled for periods of time. But there's also a concept known as equitable tolling, which are some court-made tolling rules that are designed to just prevent unfairness to certain parties, and they 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 um, allow in certain circumstances for uh, statute of limitations to just be kind of put on pause 
for a period of time. And the specific type of uh, equitable tolling in this case is what's known as American Pipe Tolling, which is named for a case called American Pipe and Construction Co. v. Utah, a 1974 Supreme Court case. And the basic idea of the rule that comes out of American Pipe is when a class action is filed, then the claims for all of the people who would have been members of the class, as the class is defined in the class action, uh, their claims are told um, for the period until uh, um, the class action is certified. Now, just to explain very briefly, a class action is when someone brings legal claims not just on behalf of themselves, themselves, but on behalf of also other similarly situated people, so people that had similar legal and factual um, claims against the defendants in the case. Um, and the idea is that all of these claims can be decided together in one legal action, and this has great benefits for um, efficiency and also uh, allows actions to be brought for for um, claims that wouldn't be worth enough, enough money to sue on all by themselves. But when you aggregate them together with many other very similar claims, it's then worthwhile to sue on. Now, one of the important steps in any class action is what's known as certification. And that's when the court t- determines that um that this case is is suitable to go forward as a class action and, and it involves determining that the the um the factual and legal issues in the case are similar enough across the particular class and there's several other um considerations um also they they want to determine that the individual plaintiffs the named plaintiffs in the case that brought the case are sufficiently representative of the claims of the entire class but in any case a court has to certify that a class action can go forward now this doesn't always happen. Sometimes a court will uh, determine that there's just, for example, um, too much variation in the individual claims between the various members of the defined class, and so it's not appropriate for this to be uh, um, tried together as a class action. So what American Pipe Tolling does is it says that if, so if a class action is not certified, if a class action is not certified, then any people who would have been members of that class, they're still free to bring their own individual claims. So if, when a class action is not certified, the named plaintiffs in the, in the class action, the people who actually brought the action to court, those people, their individual claims can still go forward. They just can't bring it on behalf of a whole class. And other people who would have been members of the class could bring their own actions. Now, the statute of limitations, however, might have prevented, uh, might have run out during the course, during, while, while this class action was pending before the certification issue was decided, they might have lost their opportunity to file it. So what American Pipe tolling says is that when a class action is filed for that period from when it's filed until a certification is denied um, the statute of limitations is told so that once the certification is denied those other people who would have come into the class action can now uh, have an opportunity to bring their own individual claims and they haven't been barred by a statute of limitations and the idea here is that it, it it one of the one of the ideas is that it prevents the need for people to file duplicative filings. It means that if a class action is filed and you're someone who's a member of that, would be a member of that class action if it's certified, you don't have to rush in and file your own action in court or um, make a motion to try and intervene in the class action to get yourself into the case just in case it's not certified as a class action. You can just wait it out see if the class action is not certified and then if you need to file your own action. And this prevents all kinds of duplicative, the need for duplicative filings for people just to protect their rights and prevent a statute of limitations to run. Now, American type pipe tolling is, um, 
is a controversial decision under among a certain class, uh, certain critics of class actions, um, because uh, some people believe this kind of court made exception is, is not appropriate in this area, but it is the, uh, the binding or the, uh, the, the governing law, um, of these class actions. So here's the specific issue in this particular case. This was the third consecutive class action against China Agritech for securities fraud. Now, the first class action was brought. That class action was not certified um, due to a failure to show that uh, that uh, the there was sufficient um, um, sufficiently uh, similar um, facts across the entire class. Uh, the class was not certified. Now, um, new plaintiffs brought a second class action uh, with basically the same securities fraud claims. Um, within this, then this was still within the the statute of limitations period. They brought the second class action. I'm sorry, my uh, my live stream feed cut out for a second. I hope you're um, still with me. But I was just saying that the uh, the a second class action was filed um, by different plaintiffs, but with these basically the same securities fraud claims. Um, that class action was also not certified. The and for that time, it was for the reason that the the um, named plaintiffs in the case were determined not to be good represent representatives of the whole class. So here's where this case comes down. This is a third class action by new plaintiffs the same securities fraud claims against China Agritech, but this one was filed after the expiration of the two-year statute of limitations. Now, if American pipe tolling applies to those first two class actions um, that were filed and the statute of limitations is tolled for those, then this third class action is still within the tolled statute of limitations and can go forward. Um, But the question is, uh, the, the argument made in this case was that American pipe tolling should only apply to new individual actions, not to a, a new class action. So does American pipe tolling apply? Now, Justice Ginsburg, for this majority, again, this is a unanimous opinion, and she wrote for an eight-justice majority, says, no, American pipe does not apply. Uh, tolling is for individual claims only. Now, Ginsburg's majority opinion, it basically says, American pipe tolling, the idea there is it's based on efficiency. It prevents uh, unnecessary filing of motions to intervene or duplicative actions um, and preserves rights. But those efficiency benefits don't really exist for successive class actions. She says, um, uh, um, while courts don't want, when a class action is filed, they don't want to be bombarded with numerous individual um, actions also that are just going to clutter up the courts. Um, if there are additional people who want to file class actions, it's better for all of those class actions to be filed as early as possible, not wait for the certification decision, but have as many class actions as are going to be filed, filed early to allow the court to possibly consolidate those class actions, to allow them to uh, potentially uh, select um, good class representatives from among uh, multiple class actions just for efficiency. It's better to have all those out early. So she says the efficiency benefits don't really exist. She points to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23. Now, that's a specific rule that has the procedures for class actions, for bringing a class action uh, litigation. And she notes that that instructs that the class certification decision should be decided at an early practicable time. And she says that this is, this is a reason why, why, why you want um, – Anything like the any um, any class actions, uh, you know, any sets of uh, potential lead plaintiffs in class actions that might be relevant to the certification decision to be um, to be in in the courts as early as possible. But she also points to another statute, and this is this is specifically relevant to this case because it's a securities fraud case, and it's a statute called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, it's just referred to as the PSLRA, which is a 1995 law that imposed 
various more stringent rules on securities fraud lawsuits. And specifically, specifically in reference to securities fraud class actions, it requires notice to potential class members early on to allow them to apply for lead plaintiff status in the case to be one of the representative plaintiffs in the case. Now, Justice Ginsburg points out that equitable tolling, the the idea behind American pipe tolling, this idea of judge-made tolling, one of the things that is always required is a showing of diligence, is showing that the plaintiff acted diligently. And in American pipe, the court said that that was uh, was done because it was perfectly reasonable for those um, plaintiffs to wait out the class certification process in the first action and not move then. So they weren't they didn't hadn't failed to be diligent by not filing their action while another action was 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 pending but justice ginsburg says here when a plaintiff could have um tried to intervene or file their own action to become a class representative in the first filed class action but didn't then they hadn't showed the necessary diligence in order to be able to allow to represent a class in the second a new action a, a later action um and uh, Ginsburg's opinion also points to potential bad practical effects of um, allowing tolling in the situation. She says that it would allow repeated extensions of a statute of limitations through successive class actions. Now, if you have a large class of individuals, every time a class certification is denied, um, the uh, lawyers could could potentially just find a new plaintiff who wasn't named in the earlier action and file a new class action. And if that is denied, find a new plaintiff and just repeat um, uh, just repeatedly. Now, if for individual tolling, it's basically one extension because once an individual, once a class action is not certified, an individual can file their own individual action and then that action will just go forward on an individual basis. Um, but, uh, but this is different with a class because it could just keep going and going and going. She also argues that this rule that they're applying here, it doesn't deny anyone their their rights under Rule 23. That's the class action rule. Because in the first place, there is no right to bring claims after the expiration of the statute of limitations. It's just this judicially crafted tolling rule. That's an exception. And the court need not extend that to these class claims, um, this this exception that they crafted for the, uh, the class action situation. Um, and she also... Uh, um, addresses some practical concerns and says that it's it's unlikely that this chain this this rule that the court is laying down here will result in some huge number of protective class filings um that hasn't been the experience of of the circuits that have already had adopted this rule earlier because there was a circuit split about whether this was allowed or not um and those that are filed are manageable can be managed by the courts through consolidation or other other means so that's the majority opinion. And then moving on, Justice Sotomayor, I mentioned, she concurred um, but did not join the majority opinion. Now, she agrees with the majority only for actions under the PSLRA. That's the Pri- Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. And she points specifically to the early notice action um, under the PSLRA. Under that statute, when a class action is filed, a securities class action, notice has to be published within 20 days of that filing. So that's a published notice that would let people know of the existence of the class action. And then there's a 60-day deadline in order for people to um, to make a motion to uh, to have lead plaintiff stat- status. So other members of the class could come into court and say that they wanted to be potentially lead plaintiffs in the action. So she says this shows an expectation that anyone who wants to be a lead plaintiff will come forward in that first action. And here, plaintiffs in this later action, they had not sought lead status in the first two actions, so they cannot show the diligence that's required. But then where Justice Sotomayor differs is looking at the Rule 23 class action. That's just a regular class action and not a not in the 
uh, the securities context. And she knows that there, there is no notice prior to certification normally. Um, the, the, and, and also there's a, there's an assumption generally that, that, that the first person to file the named plaintiffs in the first filed action will be the lead plaintiff unless there's some particular problem with them. So there, other members of the class may not even know that a class action exists. And even if they knew, um, they'd have no reason to file uh, their own uh, um, to try and intervene to become a lead plaintiff because it would, it would most likely be futile and they and they'd have no reasonable likelihood that they would be chosen over the the actual you know named plaintiffs in the filing. So she says here it just it just uh, doesn't show that they were in any way not diligent um, in uh, in um, not trying to become a lead plaintiff uh, right from the start. Um, she does note that this concern about limitless tolling, that this could just go on and on and on and on, could be a real problem, but says that the courts have ways of working around that. For example, she suggests that comedy, that's C-O-M-I-T-Y, that's a, uh, the idea of uh, one court kind of giving respect to the decisions of another court. That might be a means to address um, this, this uh, repeat litigation by saying that these later filed um, uh, class actions should, should respect decisions of the earlier courts um, to, to not just give the um, plaintiff's uh, attorneys just um, infinite bites at the apple. And also suggests that maybe the court should make a decision between when a case wasn't certified for class-wide reasons because they thought that the, the, the claims just uh, just were not suitable for class action treatment versus when a class isn't certified because the particular class representatives weren't appropriate. Saying that when the representatives weren't appropriate, you should allow new representatives to come in and file a, a new action. And that's a... Um, the court could kind of make an equitable distinction between these two different reasons for denying certification. Um, she also points to a potential negative effect of the uh, majority's rule. She argues that when there's multiple class a- filings, so so this encourages multiple class action filings early on, and this can potentially lead to a race to judgment. That's where um, the lawyers uh, know that only the first case of class action, when there's multiple class actions on the same claims, only the first case that gets to a settlement uh, the lawyers are actually going to end up getting paid. The rest of the cases are going to be basically precluded because there's already been a settlement in one case. And so it causes this race for, for lawyers to potentially um, underbid each other for a, a settlement in order to get paid in the case. So that's that's uh, that's that first case. Let's move on to the next case from Monday. This is a case called Sveen v. Mellon. Um, and this is a, a pretty unusual case because it deals with the contracts clause of the U.S. Constitution, which is not often litigated. And it's a dispute over the beneficiary of a life insurance policy. Now, here's the simple facts. In 1997, a Minnesota couple, the, the names are Mark Sveen and Kay Mellon, they got married. In 1998, the next year, Sveen added Mellon as his uh, beneficiary, primary beneficiary on his life insurance policy. So that's 1998. Now, in 2007, Sveen and Mellon get divorced, and in 2011, Sveen dies. Now, the issue here is competing claims by Mellon, that's the ex, the ex-spouse, and Sveen's children from a prior marriage, um, over who should be the beneficiary. Now, why, why is this an issue? Minnesota has a law that was passed, enacted in 2002, that's what's referred to as a revocation on divorce law. And what it basically says is when a couple gets, a married couple gets divorced, the ex-spouse is removed by act of law as the um, life insurance beneficiary. Um, 
the idea here is that many people never update their insurance beneficiary information, and there's an assumption that, in general, most people who get divorced don't intend to keep their ex-spouse as a beneficiary. So this creates this default rule that's intended to track people's common intentions. So what it'll do is a couple gets divorced, the spouse is removed as the primary beneficiary, um, the, uh, if the, the, the person dies, then it would go to the, the, uh, secondary beneficiary on the policy, or it would just default to go to the person's estate if there is no, um, other beneficiary is named. However, this is just a default rule. It can be overridden. The, the, uh, the party, uh, the policyholder after the divorce could, um, could re-add the, the ex-spouse as a beneficiary if they wanted to. There could be specific contractual language in the policy that said that, uh, even on the event of divorce, uh, the person was going to remain in, or um, the a court decree uh, in the divorce proceedings when there's a divorce settlement could specify um, who's going to be the beneficiary of the life insurance policy. So this is just a default rule. Now this is a, a pretty common approach. There are apparently about 26 states that have very similar laws, um, and some other states. Uh, frequently take a similar approach through um, divorce court proceedings. Now, uh, this is also in a different context for wills as opposed to insurance policies, but for for wills, it's a, a pretty much a, a universal or near universal rule that um, upon divorce um, or after a divorce, if a will has not been updated, the court will um, will not treat a the ex spouse um, as uh, as a beneficiary under the will. And this Minnesota statute was based on a, a uniform, what's called the Uniform Probate Code, Uniform Probate Code, which was basically a, a, a effort at a, a model um, statute to govern these kind of um, uh, death-related uh, um, uh, provisions. So Minnesota is not an outlier. It's a, it's a fairly standard approach. Now, here's the problem. This law was enacted in 2002. That was after the insurance policy was already in place. That dated to 1998, but before the couple had divorced. Now, the contract clause of the United States Constitution, it says, this is just in relevant part, it says, no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. So the argument here was that by enacting this this law that affects a previously entered into contract, the uh, state of Minnesota is violating the contract clause by impairing this 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 contract. Now the contracts clause um, dates it was it was um, it was prompted by concerns about debt relief laws that were passed by states uh, during the post Revolutionary War period, um, and, and it, the intention was to to um, promote investment by making contracts more secure, but at least according to kind of one um, recounting of the history, um, starting in the late 19th century and then kind of coming to its uh, uh, climax during the, the Great Depression, the Supreme Court started making various exceptions to the contract clause and eventually um, kind of watered down the contracts clause uh, so that it, it ceased to have as much bite as it, as, it, as it used to have. Now, the modern test for the contract clause doesn't ask um, whether there's any impairment of the obligation of contracts, but asks whether there's a substantial impairment of contract rights. And then if there is, asks whether the law serves a significant and legitimate public purpose and whether the law is a reasonable means of, of achieving that purpose. And, and if it is, then, then it's allowed to survive this test. So this case was an eight to one decision with Justice Kagan writing the majority decision and Justice Gorsuch as the lone dissenter. Um, Kagan decides this Minnesota law is constitutional. 
And she relies on, under this modern test for the uh, violation of the contract clause, uh, she says that this um, survives just, just looking solely at the first prong, substantial impairment. She says there is no substantial impairment here. She says this law is intended to reflect the policyholder's intent. There's a long history of statutes that are trying to protect, for example, a testator in a will situation, protect their expectations after certain life changes like a marriage, a birth of a child, or divorce. Um and the uh, failure of someone to change a policy is more likely due to their inattention rather than a deliberate choice to leave their ex-spouse on the policy. So this isn't really impairing um, the likely policyholder's intent. And she also says it's unlikely to disturb people's expectations because there was always a possibility that divorce courts could overrule these beneficiary designations in the first place. Um, and also that it's just a, a default rule. The policyholder can always override this by um, submitting a, a new beneficiary designation. So this is basically just a paperwork requirement, and there are precedents that have allowed um, paperwork requirements, new paperwork requirements, as not um, violating the contract clause. Now, Justice Gorsuch dissents, and he um, first he, he strongly rejects uh, the majority's um, argument that changing what he what he refers to as the most important term of a policy, uh, he, he rejects the idea that that could not be a substantial impair, impairment of the law. And he refers to, um, he, he goes on, he, he talks about how um, the, the, uh, the Constitution, the contract clause basically constitutionalizes the basic principle that statutes are generally um, deemed to be non-retroactive. Uh, they're, they're generally, um, uh, most statutory law applies going forward only, and the contract law kind of constitutionalizes that, makes that an absolute rule for purposes of impairing contracts. And it's written in absolute terms. It says, no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. Um, he also says that during the um, drafting and ratification of the Constitution, the desirability of these, this absolute contract clause was actually debated during that time, and it was enacted uh, in this kind of very absolute terms anyways. Um, and then uh, he goes on to, to, to talk about the, the, um, the modern test, this allowing a substantial impairment if it's in pursuit of a, a reasonable effort in pursuit of a significant and legitimate public purpose. And he says that that really can't be squared with the original meaning of the contract clause and, and that basically this modern test risks reducing um, this protection to, to a court's judgment about the reasonableness of legislation. And he says that the criticisms of this modern doctrine ought to be squarely faced by the court. The court hasn't really done that, but he goes on and he says under this modern doctrine, he says this, this is certainly substantial impairment. And here's what he says this is a quote. No one pays life insurance premiums for the joy of it or even for the pleasure of knowing that the insurance company will eventually have to cough up money to someone. He's emphasizing the fact that who the beneficiary is is, is of uh, supreme importance to someone having an uh, insurance policy. Um, and, and he also points to some factual allegations in this case that kind of might point to a specific unfairness. There's an allegation here from Mellon, that's the uh, ex-spouse who was arguing that she should receive the, the benefits here, that she and, and Sveen both kept each other as beneficiaries on each other's life insurance policies because they remained friends after divorce and had paid the premiums on the life insurance from joint checking account. Now, we, we really can't know on the record um, what Sveen's true intent was here, um, but it's clear that the retroactive removal um, of Sveen from the policy undid a central term of the contract that Sveen had left in place for years after the divorce happened. Um, so that's Gorsuch's argument here that this has to be a substantial impairment. Um, 
He also points to the fact that the federal government and almost half of U.S. states don't revoke um, beneficiaries upon divorce, don't have a rule like this. Um, and uh, and he says there's many plausible reasons why a policyholder might want to keep the beneficiary. For example, a sense of obligation toward the ex-spouse or the care of minor children and other things like that. And he also says that the majority's admission that this presumption is sometimes wrong, the fact that some people... Um, do want to keep their ex-spouse on the policy, the fact that they admit that should end this question, basically. Sometimes this undoes a central term of the contract. And he says, this is another quote, I do not see how a statute doesn't substantially impair contracts just because it reflects many people's preferences. And he says, basically, the constitutional rights are supposed to protect majority rights against uh, majority desires. But he goes on to say, okay, so this is a, a substantial impairment. Was it reasonable? So under the modern test, does it meet this reasonableness requirement? And he says, basically, he, he argues this was not necessary to serve the state's goal. He says there are many alternatives. For example, could have, the state could have required divorce courts to address life insurance beneficiaries in their um, divorce, divorce decrees or required divorce attorneys to advise their clients on life insurance um, when they're discussing the impacts of divorce, um, things like that. And Minnesota didn't consider any of these alternatives. So, um, so that, that's, that's the, the, the major arguments that uh, Gorsuch makes in this case. Now, one interesting thing to note is Gorsuch is alone here. Maybe slightly surprising that he isn't joined by Justice Thomas. They are very frequently allied. Uh, Gorsuch and Thomas uh, have uh, been uh, together on a number of um, uh, separate opinions uh, over uh, Gorsuch's time on the court so far. Thomas is a frequent solo dissenter and, and has a tendency to like to revisit long-standing precedents and gives great weight to the Constitution's original meaning. So many might have thought that he would be a likely um, ally for Gorsuch on this, but um, he joined the majority uh, and uh, and did not join Gorsuch's dissent in this case. So let's move on to the next case. This is Husted v. A. Philip Randolph Institute. Now, this is probably the the uh, highest profile case of this week, Um this is this is a, an election law case out of Ohio that was a challenge under federal statutory law, a challenge to Ohio's process for removing names from the voting rolls. Now, this case broke along five to four lines along these kind of stereotypical conservative liberal divide. The majority opinion was by Justice Alito. Um, the four justice dissent was by Justice Breyer. And there was actually and there was also I'm sorry a, a separate concurrence just by Justice Thomas and a separate dissent by Justice Sotomayor. So start with Justice Alito's majority. Now, he frames this case uh, as a case about uh, Ohio's attempt to deal with the problem of inaccurate voter registrations. He, he cites some statistics saying that there's an estimate of 24 million invalid or inaccurate voter registrations. And this is about one in eight voter registrations, including millions of uh, voters who are registered in more than one state. And, um, and uh, in Ohio, as in as in um, uh, pretty much everywhere, voters who move out of the district that they're registered in are ineligible to vote in that district. And according to census data, roughly 10% of Americans move every year. So a significant number of people are moving around in ways, uh, presumably, that would make them ineligible in the place where they're currently registered. Now, the, this the the key law in this case is is the National Voter Registration Act from 1993, and um, uh, in this framing, the, the, there were two main goals of this act. One was to increase voter registration, but the other goal was to 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 remove ineligible voters from the voting rolls. And there's a requirement of this law that states have a program that makes reasonable efforts to remove the names of voters who are ineligible due to death or change of reg- residency. 
Now, there's specific, also, this is very important. There are specific requirements in the statute for delisting someone, removing someone from the roles due to a change in residence. If a state is going to remove someone from the roles due to a change in residence, they need either a confirmation in writing of the change of residence or they need to send a notice with a pre-addressed postage prepaid card to the, uh, to the registered voter. Um, informing that the person that they either have to return that card or vote basically within the next four years in order to remain listed. And if they don't do that, if they don't either return the card or vote within four years, then they will be removed from the voting rolls. So that's, that's a specific requirement of the statute that, that, that states have to go through those steps if they want to remove someone for change of residency. Now, the statute does not say when this kind of notice has to be or can be sent. Now, some states do it only when there's a postal change of address form filed, but other states send this to basically everyone every year statewide, uh, send it to everyone. Um, and if they don't get a response and there's no voting for four years, those people would be re- removed. Now, Ohio does something uh, different. They use another factor, uh, which is the failure to vote for a period, a two year period of time. So if someone in Ohio is registered to vote, they don't vote for two years, um, they, 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 then after those, uh, those two years, they would, they would receive this card in the mail. And if they failed to return that card and failed to vote for another four years, they would be removed. And the, the, here's the, here's the, the key, um, provision at issue in this case. Um, there's another provision, which is referred to as the failure to vote clause, which says a state program shall not, shall not result in the removal of the name of any person by reason of the person's failure to vote. Okay, so so can't remove someone by reason of failure to vote. But there's another provision, that says, another um, part of it that says nothing in this prohibition may be construed to prohibit a state from using the procedures described in. And it talks about the certain sections about that, um, the card and the four year period. Uh, so nothing should be construed to pr- to prohibit a state from using those procedures to remove an individual from the official list of eligible vo- eligible voters. So, so those two provisions together, you can't remove someone by reason of the failure to vote, but this can't, this isn't, shouldn't be pr- construed to prohibit that two-step process with the card plus the four-year waiting period. So, what does this all mean? And and basically, um, th- there are there. Are, what it comes down to is the majority in the dissent disagree over how to read these two provisions together. Now, one potential possible reading, and this is the reading that Justice um, Alito adopts, he says that when you read these two together, you're saying you have to interpret that prohibition, the 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 you can't exclude someone by reason of the person's failure to, to vote. You have to interpret that to be consistent with this other procedure that allows you to send this um, this prepaid card and then remove someone if they don't vote for four years after that. And so what that says to Justice Alito is that, that indicates that this two-step process, this card plus the four-year period, is not removing someone by reason of the failure to vote. The fact that there's this other step in there, the, the possibility of them, of them returning this um, the pre-addressed card means that this is not um, by reason of the failure to vote, it's by reason of this confirmation, the failure to um, comply with this confirmation process. On the other side, um, and this is uh, an opinion expressed in Justice Breyer's dissent, uh, it it it, um, it views this uh, this um, provision, this this uh, uh, the confirmation followed by the four year period, as kind of a, a carve out, an exception from the general principle that you can't do something by reason of a person's failure to vote. Um, and so, Ohio's initial decision to um, 
send someone a card to have this triggered by their failure to vote for two years violates this failure to vote clause under the dissent's view. Now, um, so Justice Alito um, also points – here's here's another um, – um, um, our argument from from the majority it looks to the history of this uh the 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 act uh, at issue here and notes that prior to this act failure to vote was actually grounds for removal from the rolls in some states not as uh evidence uh, of a of a change in residency as ohio uses it so so ohio uses this two year failure to vote period as evidence that someone has changed the residency and then goes through the um the mailing of the card and the four year waiting period to confirm uh, this uh, um, uh, change of residency. But prior to this act, prior to the NVRA, uh, some states used failure to vote as grounds for removal itself. So you could just automatically be removed purely on the basis of not voting. So don't vote for a certain period of time, you get removed, not because the state's assuming you moved, but just because if you don't vote, they want to take you off the rolls. And so the argument here is that's what this um, provision was intended to to prevent, and that has been eliminated. States no longer um, can use just a failure to vote by itself as uh, as grounds for removing someone from the voting rolls. So that's kind of his uh, under his understanding of of of, um, of why this, this uh, prohibition uh, still makes sense and still has effect. Um, and he addresses some practical arguments. There's an argument that's been made that basically um, people just don't return these cards. These 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 prepaid cards just end up getting thrown out and just routinely people throw them away. So the failure to return these cards just doesn't provide good evidence that someone has actually moved. Um, so that effectively re- means that people are being removed on the basis of not voting because the cards are ineffective. Alito rejects this, saying basically that Congress specifically rejected this argument by explicitly writing this card um, a requirement into federal law, the, the mailing of a card followed by the four-year waiting period as the prescribed uh, way of removing someone for change of address. So Congress has rejected the idea in the statute that this uh, failure to return a card is not good evidence of uh, change of address. Um, and... Um, so, so that that's that's the, the basic idea of the majority opinion. Um, and as I mentioned before, the Breyer opinion has just a, a very different um, interpretation of the, um, the 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 import of the uh, failure to vote clause. Um, but there's there's a, a another um, argument that the uh, the majority makes, which is that the requirement of the statute, or I'm sorry, this is another argument the dissent makes. It argues that the uh, the statute specifically requires states to conduct a general program that makes a reasonable effort to remove the names of ineligible voters from the official list of eligible voters. And he, he looks at that, that, that phrase that must make a reasonable effort and says that the courts have a role in determining whether something is a reasonable effort. And then goes on to kind of examine the statistics and that the court has been presented with about um, how often people return these cards and such. And basically just argues that, um, returning these cards is just not a reasonable proxy for change of residency. Um, it, it compares it to other processes like uh, postal change of address forms, which are much more clearly connected. Um, and he also, uh, another provision um, that, uh, that, uh, that of the federal law that allows um, someone who retur- fails to return, um, I'm sorry, that when mail is sent to an address that's non-forwarding mail and it's returned as an undeliverable, that can be used as an indication that someone has changed address. And he points to those as kind of more reasonably connected, but says that just a failure to return these prepaid cards is not reasonably connected to residency. So this is not a reasonable effort and should fail under under those terms. 
Now, Justice Alito disagrees with that also and says that Congress has made this judgment that the failure to return a card or vote for four years was reasonable because they wrote that directly into the law. So he rejects um, Breyer's position there. Now, I'll briefly move on to the two other opinions in the case, Justice Thomas's solo concurrence. Now, he joins the majority in full and says he believes that the majority's interpretation of the statute is correct, but he also argues that the position in the dissent uh, the dissent's position would raise some serious constitutional concerns. And the reason he gives is he believes, uh, under Justice Thomas's reading, he, he believes the Constitution gives states the exclusive authority to set the qualifications for elections and determine whether those have been met. And says that by preventing this, Ohio to use the failure to vote as evidence of change of residency, it would infringe on the state's exclusive authority here. Now, this opinion relies heavily on a couple of um, Justice Thomas's previous dissents in election law cases. So this represents kind of an idiosyncratic position on the court that hasn't been fully endorsed by the rest of the court. Justice Breyer, in his uh, in, in the dissenting opinion, specifically, specifically replies to Thomas's position, saying that the court's precedents show that the federal power to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections uh, has been construed as broad enough to justify this type of law. And also, he argues that this doesn't actually regulate who can vote. So it's not regulating the eligibility to vote. It's just regulating the manner of registering those people or, or, or keeping them registered. Um, so that brings me to the final opinion in this case. This is a dissent by Justice Sotomayor. Now, she also joins Justice Breyer's dissent in full, but she env- emphasizes um, the purpose of the NVRA, the, the National Voter Registration Act, the purpose of increasing voter registration and points to the history of disenfranchisement of low income and minority voters and emphasizes a potential um, disparate effect on minority populations of this uh, Ohio policy. Now, Justice Alito replies to this in his uh, majority opinion and basically says that this is legally irrelevant. He says the challengers didn't bring a claim under provisions that bar discriminatory programs. Um, they just brought it under under this um, failure to vote uh, uh, clause. But Justice Sotomayor responds to that, saying it's relevant to interpreting the statutory text in line with Congress's purposes. So, so she she sees this as kind of a relevant consideration in determining what's the right interpretation. All right. Um, there's, so that, that's, the, those are the three, uh, decisions that were issued on Monday. In a second, I'll move on and try and quickly go through the two decisions that came down this morning. Before I do that, I'm going to step back and answer one question. I had a question in the uh, live chat from Sam A. And the question says, what would be the broader implications if the court adopted Justice Gorsuch's dissent in the contracts clause case? Now, um, that's, that's an interesting question and, and there's some dispute on that because, because part of it depends on, um, uh, on uh, kind of how how broadly you or, or how you interpret some of the court's earlier uh, decisions before the time period where people say that the court kind of cut back on its contracts clause doctrine. And um, under some reading of those earlier opinions, uh, the state still had a bit of um, leeway to do things like adjust the, the remedies that people could receive under certain contracts without actually um, impairing the actual rights people had under the contract. So they might have to enforce the contract in a slightly different way, but their rights wouldn't be impaired. And that was deemed to be um, okay. And, and in other cases, the state was able to impair people's contractual rights if they um, if they paid uh, compensation for that. So if they somehow compensated people whose statutory rights were um, had been diminished by a law that kind of impaired contracts in some way. So that gave states some more flexibility under those earlier pre- um, precedents that, that uh, Gorsuch would would um, would favor. Um, now, it's important to, also to point out that that nothing in Gorsuch's opinion um, affects the uh, the laws like this or, or any law that, that affects a contract 
prospectively, so going forward. So Gorsuch um, doesn't um, dispute at all that Minis- that um, the Minnesota law issue doesn't. He doesn't dispute that that could um, affect any contract that was entered into after that law was issued, it was enacted. So that law, in this particular case, was enacted in 2002. Anyone who designated a beneficiary after 2002 um, would could be governed by that law without any implication of the contract's law clause because it wasn't impairing an earlier entered into contract. So that would reduce the impact some because states could always uh, go forward prospectively and, um, and change the uh, baseline rules or, or, uh, you know, impose limitations on what people were allowed to do with contract. Um, but uh, beyond that, I don't, I don't have a good, you know, I'm not an expert in, uh, in the contracts area or anything. So I don't have a great sense of exactly how broad it would be. Um, but uh, that, those are just some considerations uh, um, there. So hope that at least partially uh, answers that question. Uh, so moving on to the Thursday cases, there were two cases this morning. The first was a case called Animal Science Products uh, v. Hebe Welcome Pharmaceuticals Company. And this was a unanimous opinion by Justice Ginsburg. Now, here's some brief background in this case. In uh, numerous circumstances, a case in an American court might depend on the law of some foreign country. Now, here's the specific facts in this case. Animal Science Products brought an antitrust action against Chinese vitamin manufacturers alleging that they were engaged in illegal price fixing. Now, these um, vitamin manufacturers, the Chinese companies, they raised a defense that the price fixing was actually required by Chinese law. Now, this could be a valid defense to the antitrust action, uh, antitrust trust action under something known as the act of state doctrine or under something known as the foreign sovereign compulsion doctrine. Those are rules that, that provide a defense against antitrust liability in certain circumstances. If someone was basically forced to do something by, by the, you know, the, uh, uh, foreign law. So what happened in this case is the Chinese government, um, by its, its ministry of commerce, it actually appeared as an amicus. That's a, just a, a non-party to a case who wants to express their opinion in a case. It appeared as an amicus in the district court below and said that in fact the price fixing was required under Chinese law. Now the district court went ahead and decided, um, they disagreed with the official position, the position expressed by the, the Chinese Minister of Con- Commerce and said that based on other contemporaneous evidence, it didn't believe the Ministry of Commerce's representation. And this included a statement that the Chinese government had given before the World Trade Organization saying that China had given up export administration of vitamin C, among other things. So the district court basically didn't credit this representation by the Chinese government. Now, the circuit court, the Court of Appeals, overruled the district court, and it said, basically, in this circumstance, when a foreign government appears in the litigation and and um, says what their – gives their interpretation of what the, their law means, that the court is required to defer to that if it's a reasonable interpretation of the law. So so they basically said the district court was required um, to to follow what the Chinese government said. They, the circuit court actually said the district court's careful balancing of the uh, the evidence would have been appropriate if China hadn't actually appeared in the litigation. But given that they had, uh, they had to defer to, to the Chinese government. So the big question here is – uh, the, at the at the highest level, it's, it's how does a court determine the law of a foreign country, and 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 this is governed by Federal Rule of Civil Procedure forty four point one. Now here's the language: it says, in determining foreign law, the court may consider any relevant material or source, including testimony, whether or not submitted by a party or admissible under the Federal Rules of Evidence. So it basically, says you can consider anything. But it doesn't specifically say how much weight to give it to any particular type of evidence. Now, the more specific question is. 
when you're determining the law of a foreign country, how much weight does a court give to assertions about the law that come from official agencies of that foreign con- government? And spe- more specifically still, must the court, does, is the court required to defer to the foreign government's um, claimed interpretation of its own law? Now, Justice Ginsburg um, re- uh, rejects the Second Circuit's rule says you, the, that the courts do not have to defer to foreign governments. She looks at Rule 44.1 and notes that, that foreign law is, is considered a question of law. Not It's not a question of fact that needs to be pleaded and proved according to the laws of evidence. Uh, it's a question of law. And, and basically, the idea of Rule 44.1 was to treat it um, similar to the way that courts treat American law, where the court has the ability to kind of weigh just different pieces of evidence on its own and determine what's the governing law. Now, she notes that the idea of comedy, again, this is C-O-M-I-T-Y, the idea of uh, respect given to other the acts of other uh, sovereigns, it requires very careful consideration of a foreign government's statements. Um, but here's some quotes from the opinion. She says, quote, but the appropriate weight in each case will depend upon the circumstances. A federal court is neither bound to adopt the foreign government's characterization nor required to ignore other relevant materials. And she goes on to say, when a foreign government makes conflicting statements or, as here, offers an account in the context of litigation, there may be cause for caution in evaluating the foreign government's submission. And then finally, a final quote here. She says, no single formula or rule will fit all cases in which foreign government described its own law. Relevant considerations include the statement's clarity, thoroughness, and support, its context and purpose, the transparency of the foreign legal system, the role and authority of the entity or or official offering the statement and the statement's consistency with the foreign government's past positions. So she basically gives courts broadly way to consider a, a range of factors in, in determining whether or not to credit a representation by a foreign government. And so she says the court of appeals was wrong to consider the ministry's position binding on it. And this is also consistent with the way that federal courts treat um, state representations. So if a, a attorney general of a state makes representations to the federal government about what the state law means, the court will uh, give some uh, respect and deference to that representation, but does not is not consider itself bound by that. Um, and and the Justice Ginsburg criticizes the Court of Appeals for ignoring other relevant evidence, including uh, past inconsistent statements by the Chinese government by by binding itself by the minister's position. She also looks at the reciprocity idea, the idea of of of, of what. Uh, um, other countries do when considering United States law and notes that the United States doesn't actually argue in foreign uh, venues that its own filings in foreign courts are binding interpretations of U.S. law. So the United States doesn't ask for the kind of consideration that China is asking for here. And notes that this is consistent with two um, international treaties on how to determine foreign law. The U.S. isn't a signatory of those treaties, but she notes that this kind of represents international practice in this area. Um and uh, the the uh, the result here basically is that the court doesn't address what actually is the correct interpretation of the Chinese law. It just sends it back to the Court of Appeals to consider it again in light of all the relevant evidence. And the court also doesn't touch the underlying legal issue of whether Chinese China's interpretation of the law would be a valid defense to antitrust liability. So that's still um, open. Uh, in the in the lower courts. Now, I have another question from Sam A. Also, in the questions here, it says, "Is the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure an act enacted by Congress, or is it something the court formulates?" Now, that's interesting. It's kind of a, a hybrid situation. The rules of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Um, there's a a uh, a, a body. The um, 
a judicial conference. I'm sorry, the name was escaping me for a minute, but it's a, a body consisting of federal judges from various um, levels of the federal judiciary, and they're appointed by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And that body is in charge of reviewing the federal rules. And in addition to the federal rules of civil procedure, there's federal rules of appellate procedure, and there's a couple other um, the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure, other federal rules. The 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 uh, this body is they're they're responsible for reviewing that and then periodically updating. It. And they do on a very regular basis many of the revisions or additions or changes to the rules uh, are, are relatively minor, but occasionally there's more major ones, major changes to the rules. Um, and so this, this uh, um, judicial conference recommends changes to the rules. Those get sent to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ultimately has the decision of whether to adopt those rule changes or not. But once the Supreme Court adopts certain rule changes, those are forwarded on to Congress, um, which then has the opportunity to um, overrule those changes. So Congress can step in and, and, and not allow those changes to take effect. So it's, but it, it's primarily the, the, the rules are, are put in place by um, the courts themselves, um, but not, but uh, through this, through this, uh, this, this, the judicial conference, this uh, um, body. So that's, uh, that's where the, the rules of civil procedure come from. Um, so moving on this is the, to the final case this is the second uh, opinion from this morning and the final case of um, of the week is a case called Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky. And this is a First Amendment case. And it, it was a seven to two decision with the majority um, written by Chief Justice Roberts and a dissent by Justice Sotomayor joined by Justice Breyer. Now, this concerned a Minnesota statute, and this is dealing with uh, with election uh, places, polling places, and it says, a political badge, political button, or political insignia may not be worn at or about the polling place on primary, primary or election day. And then there are certain uh, penalties uh, in, uh, associated with this, including potential misdemeanor criminal penalties. Now, the fact here is, um, uh, well, um, let, let me let me move on. Let, uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll give the the basic facts in this case. So, um, on election day, a uh, a man who was a representative of this organization called the Minnesota's Voter Voters Alliance. He was uh, executive director of that organization. He showed up at the polling place wearing a uh, t shirt, a Tea Party t shirt with the Gadsden flag. That's the "Don't Tread on Me" logo, and also a button which had the the phrase please id me it was kind of a reference to the political debates over voter id laws for elections um and he was uh initially he was he was turned away and told he couldn't vote eventually he was allowed to vote but his name and information was recorded for potential um criminal prosecution later now this was specifically a test case um his organization had previously tried to challenge this law as unconstitutional under the first amendment and he had warned these things specifically to kind of provoke a a test case in this uh, in in this case. So um, I'll just uh, start with uh, Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion. Again, this is a seven justice majority opinion. He begins by a historical count. He talks about early American elections and how they were really not private affairs. There was rampant electioneering, including the distribution of pre-printed ballots for partisan slates at the polling places. There was a lot of heckling and harassment of voters. And in the late, starting in the late 19th century, there were a number of reforms, which included the universal adoption of secret ballots um, and restrictions on polling place electioneering. And notice that all 50 states plus the District of Columbia now have um, some sorts of restrictions on polling place electioneering. Now, the specific Minnesota scheme at issue in this case is has uh, three parts to it. The first is a prohibition 
of um, messages to vote for or refrain from voting a particular candidate or ballot question within 100 feet of the polling place. Now, that's not being challenged here, and that type of thing has been upheld in a previous Supreme Court case. There's also a prohibition on distributing political badges, political buttons, or other political insignia at or about the polling place. Now, that distribution provision is also also not being challenged here. But the third part, the actual challenge here is – a provision that says political badge, political button, or other political insignia may not be worn at or about the polling place. And that's what's challenged here. Now, the policy in Minnesota is if someone is wearing uh, one of those items, they're supposed to be uh, requested to either cover or remove the uh, the insignia. And if they refuse, they're supposed to be allowed to vote, but their name is recorded to be referred to authorities for potential civil penalties or misdemeanor criminal prosecution. Um now, uh, all of these prohibitions, including this um, uh, prohibition on wearing these uh, political badges and such, uh, date back more than a century. So these are not new laws. These have been on the books for a long time. So um, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, he, what he does is this, uh, this is a First Amendment challenge, and he does something – he starts with something that's known as forum analysis. This is uh, um, when, uh, when there's a uh, – uh, a location that's a public property, something controlled by the government. Um, the the courts uh, they use something known as form analysis, and where they uh, they have a different um, different set of rules depending on the type of place that's involved. Now, one type of place is what's known as a traditional public forum, and this is the 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 classic examples of this are public sidewalks or parks, which are considered to be classic places for First Amendment expression. And in those places, it's highly protected. And the court uh, states have a pretty high bar that they have to overcome if they want to um, restrict speech in those type of places. Um, there's also things known as a designated public forum. That's uh, some other place. It's not one of these traditional places like a park, but it's been intentionally opened up to the public for speech purposes. And that has basically the same standard as a traditional public forum. But the other um, type of uh, location, and that's what's uh, relevant here, is what's called a non-public forum. Now, this is when there's government property that's that is, here's a quote, not by tradition or designation a forum for public communication. The government can reserve this space for its own intended purposes and, and exclude speech as long as the restrictions are reasonable and not viewpoint-based. So the government is not trying to discriminate based on the viewpoint being expressed. And the court basically says the interior of a polling place on election day is clearly a non-public forum. It's a space that's kind of being set aside for the purposes of voting, not for people to express themselves. And there's no claim here that the text of the ban itself, this is a challenge to the actual language of the statute, there's no claim that it's viewpoint discriminatory. So this basically rises or falls on whether this is reasonable, whether it meets the, the reasonableness test. So the court looks at one of its previous um, precedents, a case called Burson v. Freeman. That's the one that upheld a ban on specific electioneering communications within 100 feet of a polling place. And the court had in that case held that this was even under the the, um, traditional public forum uh, framework, which is much more restrictive, even under that – in that type of a forum, the court had said that this was okay. There were uh, things like fraud, voter in- intimidation, confusion, and general disorder that were valid reasons that the state had for for um, for putting this in place. Um, but the court notes that they didn't address this type of passive speech, these apparel and buttons, um, and didn't address the interior of the polling place where um, the situation is a little different because it's accessible only to voters while they're voting. So it's not like someone can just set up camp and leaflet or have big posters all day long there. So it's a kind of a different context. 
And the court notes that other precedents have recognized that non-disruptive, uh, the non-disruptive nature of expressive apparel, it's different from, uh, you know, uh, confronting and talking to someone face to face. It's just someone, uh, wearing something on their body. Um, but the court says the polling place is a special place and there's special considerations. So, um, these prior precedents about the non-disruptive nature of expressive apparel don't necessarily apply here. Um, and the court notes that most states ban at least some apparel in polling place. Um, this, the, uh, most states bar, at the very least, express um, uh, statements of support for a particular candidate. So uh, uh, a T-shirt that said vote for Trump or vote for Hillary, um, that would uh, be banned in, in most states. Now, there are a minority of states that do expressly allow any type of speech uh, of this type of apparel uh, worn by voters, but that's a, a minority position. So what the court is, does is Roberts looks at the specific line drawing being done here. And he looks at the language, political badge, political button, or other political insignia. The problem here is the word political is not defined in the statute, and it can have an extremely broad meaning. Now, Roberts suggests that just a button just that just had the word vote on it uh, could be determined, deemed political under a very broad reading of it. And he criticizes the state of Minnesota for have, having given unclear or inconsistent definitions. Um, the, the, the state has said that, only words and symbols that an objectively reasonable observer would perceive as conveying a message about the electoral choices at issue in the polling place were covered by this provision. But the state has also specifically said that this is not limited to explicit campaign statements. Uh, the state has given official guidance to, can- to uh, election workers, um, and the court looks at some of the, the some of the things that this guidance says are prohibited. And one, and so here are two of them. That the court specifically addresses in detail. It says. Issue-oriented materials designed to influence or impact voting. So that's one category that's, that the state regards as banned under this provision. But the state um, has taken the position that issue on this, an issue-oriented material, means any subject on which a candidate has taken a stance. So, um, for example, please ID me, the language on the button. Voter ID is not something that's actually on the ballot in Minnesota, but candidates for election had taken positions on voter ID laws, so this was covered. Now, uh, the court says, here's a quote, a rule whose fair enforcement requires an election judge to maintain a mental index of the platforms and positions of every candidate and party on the ballot is not reasonable. And the court moves on to a second um, uh, banned uh, category in the guidance, and it says uh, uh, apparel that's promoting a group with recognizable political views. Now, this is not limited to groups that are taking positions on, a can- on candidates or ballot questions. Minnesota said that this applies to any group that has views on issues that are confronting voters in election. Now, the court notes how broad this is. It notes that, that uh, organizations such as the, the ACLU, the AARP, the World Wildlife Fund, and even Ben & Jerry's, they're all organizations that have taken public positions on political issues. So this could this could have a very broad reach. Now, Minnesota says this is limited to well-known positions, but the court is not pleased by this. It asks, well-known by whom? And th- this kind of determination would likely depend on the particular media consumption of election officials, which is not likely to lead to a fair application of this uh, of this standard. Um, the court. Uh, so for those reasons, the court basically says this is just not a reasonable way of trying to um, limit. Uh, disruptive speech inside the polling place. Uh, the court also compares to the practice in other states and notes that a number of other states have prohibitions that are much more specific, limited, for example, to specifically things that mention sp- certain candidates or ballot measures or political parties. The court doesn't say that this is, the states are required to be so limited, 
um, but just says that they must at least be much clearer than Minnesota's standard in order to be constitutional. So leaves open the question of of um, how much speech a uh, state can restrict in the polling place and and uh, get away with under the standard. Um, but Minnesota is just too fuzzy, too unclear, um, and potentially too broad to uh, to be reasonable. So there's a dissent by Justice Sotomayor, and this is joined by Justice Breyer. And um, it's an interesting dissent because it doesn't uh, directly contest the uh, court's uh, First Amendment analysis, but instead argues for um, certification of the uh, um, the interpretation of this Minnesota law to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Now, let me explain what I'm what this means. Now, uh, the laws of a particular state. Now, while the United States Supreme Court is the considered the supreme arbiter of federal law and the U.S. Constitution, state supreme courts are generally considered the definitive authority on the meaning of state law. Now, some states, not all states, but some states have procedures that would allow a federal court to certify a question to the state Supreme Court on an issue of state law. So they can request a definitive resolution of state law for the federal court's purposes. For example, here, the federal court could ask a state, the state Supreme Court, the Minnesota State Supreme Court, something like, what is the test for determining whether a badge button or insignia is political um, under the terms of this voting law. Now, a state Supreme Court doesn't have to accept a certified question. They can decline to answer that question. But if they choose to, the, the benefits of this kind of certification process is it allows, it gives kind of greater respect for the state courts and avoids unnecessary determinations by the federal court that are contrary, contrary to, um, state law. And, um, but there, there are some potential drawbacks too, because it, it causes some delays in litigation and can cause a waste of resources when you have more courts having to weigh in on a particular um, legal issue unnecessarily. Um, Justice Sotomayor argues that there's a principle of, of, of avoidance, a constitutional avoidance, which says that before a court goes to, a, to declare a, a statute unconstitutional, it should it uh, it needs to assure itself that there isn't a a different interpretation of the law that would be constitutional, and and she says that federal courts should be very hesitant to adopt an unconstitutional interpretation of state law when the of the option is there to certify the question to the state court um, to to get a definitive resolution of that. Now, Justice Roberts responded in the majority opinion in a footnote to uh, Justice Sotomayor's positions here and says first Minnesota waited too long. To, to try and seek this certification. He says they waited uh, seven years into this litigation to even suggest that certification was appropriate in this case. Justice Sotomayor responds to that, saying basically that's irrelevant. Certification is for the benefit of the federal courts in order to let it get the law right. It's not something the parties can just waive. And courts can even do that uh, on their own initiative without any party requesting it. So she uh, rejects that idea. And um, Justice Roberts also says this was unlikely to change anything. The, the court, the Supreme Court decided this case based on Minnesota's own interpretation um, of, the, of, of its law. The state didn't offer any better alternative that it would recommend the Minnesota Supreme Court to adopt. Now, Justice Sotomayor disagrees with that, saying there's nothing that requires the Minnesota Supreme Court to adopt the position of the state, the, the, the organs of the state government. Um, and she says they should give respect to the state Supreme Court by allowing it the opportunity to create its own more workable standard. Um, and she argues further that she says that a constitutional interpretation of the Minnesota law is at least fairly possible. She thinks that the word political could be interpreted in a more manageable way and points to other different contexts where the Supreme Court has upheld distinctions turning on whether something is political. 
Um, and she also points to the history of the application of this law in Minnesota, noting that no one apparently in the, the long history of this law, no one has ever actually been denied the opportunity to vote or or criminally prosecuted under this law and says that, that given those facts, it's the concerns over the uh, um, unequal application of this law, they just seem overblown. Now, Justice Sotomayor doesn't clearly address what she thinks of the First Amendment analysis under the majority's interpretation um, uh, of, of the case. Um, she, you know, does promote this possibility of a narrower construction by the Minnesota Supreme Court, but she also does seem to cast some doubt on the majority's concerns about the unworkability of the state guidance. So it's not completely clear in, in the this is uh, at this point uh, impossible situation, but in the hypothetical consider uh, situation where if this, this case were um, uh, certified to the Minnesota Supreme court and the Minnesota Supreme court came back with the exact same interpretation that the majority had worked with. Um, it's not necessarily clear which way Justice Sotomayor would go in that particular circumstance based on her statements uh, in her dissent. Um, but uh, that kind of brings me to the end of that opinion. Now, um, I want to know, I have one more uh, comment in the, uh, the, the live chat comments by Sam A. And it says, note, the opinion quotes Justice Alito's questioning during oral argument, which was novel. Now, th- this is very interesting. Justice Alito in oral argument had a, uh, a series of questions for the uh, Council for Minnesota that were, um, seemed uh, pretty, pretty uh, devastating and got a lot of attention after the oral argument was over. He, he gave a, a series of uh, hypothetical questions about particular messages that might be on a t- t-shirt or, or, or button um, and whether or not those would be political. And he asked about certain things, asked, would this be a political statement? Would it not? And he eventually asked, what if someone had a t-shirt that had the language of the second amendment on the t-shirt? So, t-shirt. so just the language of the second amendment, uh, the, the, um, you know, saying the, the uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed or or, or whatever on a T-shirt would that be a banned uh, political um, political insignia or political um, a badge or whatever? And the attorney for Minnesota said yes, it would. That's a controversial issue that uh, um, uh, politicians often take positions on. That could well be something prohibited. So Alito then turned to ask, what if the text on the T-shirt were the First Amendment? Um, to, uh, saying that the Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech and that we're on a t-shirt. Would that be something that could be banned? And the attorney was forced to kind of uh, say no, no backpedal um, because uh, he didn't want to be placed in the position of saying that the court could or the state could pass a law that bans the printing of the language of the First Amendment, which protects the freedom of speech. Um, so it just, it was a, a very, a, a, you could just consider it a very clever set of um, hypotheticals that he posed to the attorney that kind of backed them into a corner and, uh, and made the, the, uh, made the state's uh, kind of uh, determinations of what is or is not political seem very arbitrary and uh, and inconsistent. Uh, so it's just interesting because the court uh, the court uh, did bring that up in the opinion. Um, so that's uh, that brings me to the end of the five opinions for this week. Um, uh, so I th- it's running a little long here, so I think I'll I'll, I'll wrap it up with with that. Um, this kind of brings us to the end of the episode. Our next live stream will be a week from today, Thursday, June 21st at 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, next week's live stream, the court uh, had its private conference again earlier today. An orders list from that conference will be issued Monday morning at 9.30. So uh, we can see if we get any new grants for next term in Monday's orders list. And opinions are also expected Monday morning at 10 a.m. 
Now, no additional opinion days have yet been announced, but it's a good bet that we'll get more opinions later in the week, probably on Thursday, um, like this week. Um, because, uh, again, a reminder, there's only two weeks left uh, before the, the court's uh, self-imposed deadline, and there are still 19 cases outstanding. Now, that's a lot. Nine to ten cases a week is is just a, a, a very uh, very high rate of uh, opinion issuance by this court. Um, and there's a number of major cases still pending, and these just include just, just – um, Includes Carpenter v. United States. That's the big uh, case about um, the government's access to cell uh, cell phone uh, cell site location data. Um, there's the two partisan gerrymandering cases, Gil v. Whitford and Benesek v. Limon, that are still outstanding. A case called Nifla v. v. I'm sorry, Nifla v. Becerra, which is a challenge to California's uh, FACT Act, which is a, um, a disclosure law for um, for pregnancy centers uh, uh, relating to uh, the availability of abortions. Uh, there's Janus v. Asks Me, which is a case about um, a union's ability to uh, um, collect fees from non-members to cover collective bargaining costs. South Fair, which is about uh, whether states can impose taxes on out-of-state inter- internet sales. And uh, last but not least, Trump v. Hawaii, the litigation over the uh, the legality of uh, President Trump's travel ban, uh, the uh, ban on entry into the country by nationals of certain countries. So a lot to come, a lot of, uh, of big cases that are uh, expected to come down in the next two weeks. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at CountingTo5.com, on the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to 5 or send an email to Mike at CountingTo5.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been Counting to 5.